You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Fascinated by all on display, except that just then Akates, 
who'd been sent on ahead, came back, accompanied by the Sibyl, Deiphobe, daughter of Glaucus, priestess of Diana and Phoebus, who dressed the prince. This is no time to be standing staring here. It would be better now to pick out for sacrifice seven bullocks from a herd that has not been yoked, and an equal number of properly chosen yokes. Having spoken these words to Aeneas, whose men are quick to obey her instructions, the priestess summons the Trojans into her high inner sanctum. At Cumae, behind the broad cliff, an enormous cave has been quarried. A hundred entrances, a hundred wide open mouths lead in and out of them scramble a hundred echoing voices. The Sibyl's responses. They arrived at that threshold and the Vestal cried, Now, now you must ask what your fate is. The God is here with us, Apollo. Her countenance suddenly paled and convulsed, hair got disheveled, breast was a heave, heart beating wilder and wilder. Before their eyes, she goes tall, something not mortal enters. She is changed by the breath of the god breathing through her. Aeneas of Troy, she demands. Your vows and your prayers, why do you wait? Pray, for until you have prayed, the jaws of this cavern won't echo or open. And there she fell silent. The hardy Trojans feel a cold shiver go through them. Their prince from the depths of his heart beseeches the god. Phoebus, you always had pity for Troy and her troubles. It was you who steadied Paris's aim and directed the arrow into Achilles. You who were pilot as I entered sea after sea, skirting the coasts of distant land masses, remotest Massilia, the sandbank of Syrtian gulfs. Here then at last we set foot on Italia that seemed for so long the unreachable. Henceforth let Trojan ill fortune be a thing of the past. For now all you gods and goddesses, you to whom Troy's name and fame gave affront, divine law constrains you to spare us the last of its relics. And you, Ceres most holy, to whom the future lies open, grant what I ask, no more in the end than my fate has assigned. Home ground for my people in Latium, refuge for our wandering gods and all Troy ever held sacred. Then to Phoebus, Paul and Diana, I will set up a temple in solid marble and inaugurate feast days in the gods' honor. And for you, O oh, all gracious one, a sanctuary will be established, a vault where I shall preserve divinations from lots and oracles you have vouchsafed to my people. And in your service I shall ordain chosen men. Yet one thing I ask of you, not to inscribe your visions in verse on the leaves in case they go frolicking off in the wind. Chant them yourself, I beseech you. So saying, Aeneas fell silent. 
Meanwhile, the Sybil, resisting possession, storms through the cavern in the throes of her struggle with Phoebus Apollo. But the more she draws at the mouth and contorts, the more he controls her, commands her, and makes her his creature. Then, of their own accord, those hundred vast tumults give and give vent to the prophetess's responses. Oh, you who survived in the end, the sea's dangers, the worst still await on the land. You and your Trojans will come into your own in Lavinia. Have no fear of that. But the day is one you will rue. I see wars, atrocious wars, and the time are surging with blood. A second Samoa's river, a second Xanthus, a second enemy camp by ahead. And already in Latin, a second Achilles comes forth, he too the son of a goddess. Nor will Trojans ever be free of Juno's harassments, while you, without allies, dependent, will go through Italia, petitioning cities and peoples. And again, the cause of such pain and disaster for Trojans will be as before. A bride, cold in a host country, an outlander groom, but whatever disasters befall, do not flinch. Go all the bold to face them. Follow your faith to the limit. A road will open to safety from the last place you would expect. A city of Greeks. Thus from her innermost shrine, the Sibyl of Kumei chanted menacing riddles and made a cave echo with sayings where truths and enigmas were twinned inextricably. While Apollo reigned in her spasms and curbed her or sank the spurs in her ribs. Then as her fit passed away and her raving went quiet, heroic Aeneas began. No ordeal, O Sibyl, no new test can dismay me. For I have foreseen and foresuffered all. But one thing I pray for especially, since here the gate opens, they say, to the king of the underworld's realms, and here in these shadowy marshes, the Acheron floods to the surface. Vouchsafe me one look, one face-to-face -face meeting with my dear father. Point out the road. Open the holy doors wide. On these shoulders, I borne through flames and a thousand enemy spears. In the thick of fighting, I saved him, and he was at my side then on all my sea crossings, battling tempests and tides. A man in old age, worn out, not meant for duress. He too it was who hath prayed and hath ordered me to make this approach, to find and petition you. Wherefore have pity, O most gracious one, on a son and a father, for you have the power, you whom Hecate named mistress of wooded Avernus. If Orpheus could call back the shade of a wife by trusting and tuning the strings of his Thracian lyre, if Pollux brother by taking the road repeatedly in and out of the land of the dead. If Thesis and Hercules do, but why speak of them? I myself am of highest worth, a descendant of Jove. He was praying like that, 
and holding onto the altar when the Sibyl started to speak. Beloved relation of Jock of Gods, Trojan, Son of Anchises, it's easy to descend into others. Death's dark door stands open day and night. But to retrace your steps and get back to upper air, that is the task. That is the undertaking. Only a few have prevailed, sons of gods whom Jupiter favored, or heroes exalted to glory by their own worth. At the center it is all forest and a ring of dark waters. The river Cocytus furls and flows around it. Still, if love so torments you, if your need to be ferried twice across the sticks and twice to explore that deep, dark abyss is so overwhelming, if you will and must go that far, understand what else you must do. Hid in the thick of a tree is a golden bough, gold to the tips of its leaves and the base of its stem. Sacred, tradition declares, to the queen of that place. It is safe there, roofed in by forests, in the pathless, shadowy valleys. No one is ever allowed down to the earth's hidden places unless he has first plucked this sprout of fledged gold from his tree and handed it over to fair Proserpina, to whom it belongs, by degree, her own special gift. And when it is plucked, a second one grows every time in its place, golden again, emanating that same sheen and shimmer. Therefore, look up and search deep, and as soon as you find it, take hold of it boldly and duly. If fate has called you, the bow will come away in your hand. Otherwise, no strength you muster will break it, nor the hardest forged blade lock it off. But while you linger here on my doorstep, consulting and suing, sad news, alas, awaits. The body of one of your friends lies emptied of life, and his death pollutes the whole fleet. Carry this man to a right resting place, lay him into his tomb, sacrifice herds of black sheep as your first votive offerings. Then, then only will you view the forests of sticks, those realms barred to the living. <coughs> she said these things, pressed her lips shut, and went silent. Down cast, 
walked away from the cave, not sure what to think or expect. Trusty Arcates walked at his side, in step with his friend, apprehensive, intense, the give and take of their talk, uncertain yet urgent. Who, for example, might be the dead comrade the Sibyl enjoined them to bury? And then the song, my sailors on a dry stretch of beach, they come up and saw the son of Aeolus unfairly, peremptorily called to his death. This man unsurpassed at rallying fighters, blaring the war call on his bronze trumpet. Once he had been great Hector's comrade, standing by him in battle, unmistakable, known by his trumpet and spear. Then, after Achilles had savaged Hector to death, this staunchest of heroes, unwilling to join a less worthy cause, chose to follow Aeneas. But a mad moment came when the trumpeter blew resonant notes from a conch shell over the waves, intending to challenge the gods to a musical contest. Triton was shaken with envy, hard as it is to believe, and surged up and drowned him in a sudden backwash of foam. Now feeding, now flying. 
when they came to the fuming gorge at Averroes, they swept up through clear air and back down to their chosen perch, a tree that was two trees in one, green-leafed yet refulgent with gold, like mistletoe shining in cold winter woods. Gripping its tree but not graft, always in leaf, its yellowy berries and sprays curled around the bowl. Those flickering gold tendrils lit up the dark overhang of the gold and chimed in the breeze. There then an edge took hold of the bow, and although it resisted, greedily tore it off and carried it back to the sibyl's cabin. Trojans were mourning, Mycenaeus as closely as ever, paying their last respects to the inert ash. With resinous pine wood and a cut off section of oak, they constructed first a huge pyre, dressing its flanks with branches darkly in leaf, fencing the base with funereal cypress, crowning all with resplendent armor and weapons. Some heated water in bubbling vats over open fires washed and anointed the corpse, then raised the lament. Next, when the weeping was over, they laid him out on the ritual couch, his remains swathed in purple, familiar robes of the dead. Some step in to lift high a great beer, a grievous observance, and with eyes averted, as ancestral custom required, touched a blazing torch to the base of the pyre. Gifts of food, piled offerings, incense and bowls brimming over with oil went up in the flames. Then, when the fire died, collapsing to ash, they poured wine on his parched dust, and Coroneus collected the bones in a bronze urn and sealed them. Three times he moved round the company, sprinkling clean water for purification, aspurging men lightly from an olive branch, dewy with promise, then gave the farewell. And under a high airy hill, Aeneas reared a magnificent tomb, hung with the dead man's equipment, his oar and his trumpet. So the hill is now called Mycenaeus a name that will live down the ages. Once this was done, Aeneas quickly proceeded to follow the Sibyl's instructions. There was a cave, a deep rough-walled cleft, stone jaws agape above the dark lake, with the lake and the grove for protection and shelter. No creature of air could wing its way safely over that water. Such were the noxious fumes spewing up from the murky chasm into the vault of the heavens. The Greeks therefore called it Avernus, place without birds. The first thing the priestess did here was line up four black heifers, pour libations of wine on their foreheads, clip off the bristles that sprouted between their horns, and commence sacrifice offering them on the flames, all the while praying her clamorous prayers to Hecate, she who has power under the earth and above it. Others draw blades, catching warm blood in vessels. 
Aeneas himself with the stroke of a sword to honor dark night and her sister the earth, slays a black-fleeced lamb, and to honor you, Proserpina, a heifer, infertile. Then for the king of the underworld, he illumines the dark, consecrating an altar where he burns whole carcasses and pours sluggish oil on the glowing entrails of bulls. But all of a sudden, between the first glimmer and full rise of the sun, the ground at their feet starts rumbling and shaking. The wooded heights are tremble, and in the uncanny light, what they hear sounds like the howling of dogs as Hecate approaches. Out from here! The seeress is shouting. Out! Anyone here not in the ship? All searched apart from the globe, but not you. spirit be tested. Now, now your courage must hold. So saying, wrapped and unstoppable, she hurled herself into the mouth of the wide open cave, and he, without fear, kept in step as she guided him forward. Gods who rule over souls, shades who subsist in the silence, chaos and phlegathon, Oh, you hushed nocturnal expanses, let ascent be forthcoming as I tell what's been given to tell. Let ascent be divine as I unveil things profoundly beyond us, mysteries and truths buried under the earth. On they went then in darkness, through the lonely shadowing night, and nowhere of deserted dwellings, dim phantasmal reaches where Pluto is king. Like following a forest path by the hovering light of a moon that clouds and unclouds at Jupiter's whim, while the colors of the world pall in the gloom. In front of the house of the dead, between its dread jams, is a courtyard where pain and self-wounding thoughts have ensconced themselves. Here too are pallid diseases, the sorrows of age, hunger that drives men to crime, agonies of the mind, poverty that demeans. All of these haunting nightmares have their beds in the niches. Death too and sleep, the brother of death, and terror and guilty pleasures that memory battens on. Also, close by that doorway, the iron cells of the furies, death dealing war and fanatical violence, her viper tresses a stream in a blood-stained tangle of ribbons. Right in the middle stands an elm, copious, darting a flutter, old branches spread wide like arms, and here, it is said, false dreams come to roost, clinging together on the undersides of the leaves. At the gates, monstrosities brood in their pens, bewildering beasts of every form and description, two-natured centaurs and scyllas, hundred-headed briarios, the beast of Lerna, loathsome and hissing, and firefine chimera. Gorgons and harpies, too, and the looming mass of triple-framed Geryon, faced 
with this route, and Nathan is thrown into panic. Pulls out his sword, swings it round in defence, and had not his guide in her wisdom forewarned him that there were lives without that these were lives without substance, phantoms, apparitional forms. He would have charged and tried to draw blood from shadows. Our road starts here that leads to the Acheron River. Here too is the roiling abyss, heaving with mud, venting a silty upsurge in the cottages. And beside these flowing streams and flooded wastes, a ferryman keeps watch, surly, filthy, and bedraggled caron. His chin is bearded with unclean white shag. The eyes stand in his head and glow. A grimy cloak flaps out from a knot tied at the shoulder. All by himself, he poles the boat, hoists sail, and ferries dead souls in his rusted craft. Old, but still a god. And in a god, old age is green and hardy. Hereabouts, a crowd came pouring to the banks, women and men, a noble-minded hero, separated now from their living flesh. Young boys, unmarried girls, and sons, cremated before their father's eyes. Continuous at the streaming leaves, nipped off by the first frost in autumn woods, or flocks of birds blown inland from the stormy ocean, when the year turns cold and drives them to migrate to countries in the sun. There they stood, those souls, begging to be the first allowed to cross, stretching out arms that hankered towards the farther shore. The stern boatman permits one group to board and now another, but the rest he denies passage, driving them back away from the sandy banks. Amazed and then moved by all this press and pleading, Inez asks his guide, what does it mean, O Sibyl, this push to the riverbank? What do these souls desire? What decides that one group is held back, another road across the muddy waters? Son of Anchises, the venerable one replied, O true-born son of heaven, what you see here are the standing pools of Cocytus and the Stygian marsh. These are the names invoked when gods swear oath they will never dare to break. That crowd in front of you died but were left unburied, with no help or hope. The ferryman is Caron. The ones on board his craft are the buried. Not until bones have found a last resting place will shades be led across these gurgling currents. They're doomed instead to wander and haunt about the banks for a hundred years. Then and then only are they there again allowed to approach the brink and waters that they long for. Inez stopped and stood there, lost in thought, comprehending, pity in his heart at their misfortune. <coughs> then caught sight of Lucastus and Orontes, who captained the Lycian fleet, downcast men, denied the rights of the dead. On their way, out of Troy, a southern gale struck ship and crew in heavy seas, and both were swept away, overwhelmed in the turmoil. And now there appears his helmsman, Palinurus, 
We don't know since it pitched and tumbled off the stern into open sea as he held course from Africa, eyes fixed upon the stars, to whom Aeneas, once he recognized his sad form in the congregating dark, spoke first, which God snatched you from his malignors and drowned you in the deep. Tell me, oh tell what happened. Never until now did Apollo's oracle prove false, but this time he deceived me. You would survive the waves, he prophesied and land safe on the shore of Italia. Is this how he keeps his word? But Palinurus answered, My captain, son of Anchises, the god Apollo's oracle did not play you false, nor did any god plunge me into the waves. What happened was this. The steering oar I held and was in charge of snapped in a sudden gale, and as I fell, I dragged it down with me. But I swear by ocean, fear I had for myself then was as nothing to the fear I had for your ship. Stripped of her tackle, her steersman overboard, would she not wallow and founder in those mountainous seas? For three nights, through horizonal surge, a south wind hurled me and burled me. The fourth day at dawn, I rose on a swell and got my first glimpse of Italia. Little by little then, I was leaning headway, slugging towards land in my waterlogged clothes, getting a grip on the razorback bridges, when savage locals appeared with drawn swords, a pack who, for wanting of knowing, assumed that I'd be rich pickings. Now surf keeps me dandled. The shore winds roll me and roll me. You've therefore you, the unbowed, the unbroken, I implore by the cheerful light of the sky and its breezes, by your father and your hopes as a father of Eulus, get me away from this place, put an end to my woes, either scatter the handful of earth on my corpse, which you easily can once you're back in the harbor of Thalia, or else if there be a way, if your goddess mother can direct you to one, for I believe you are bound to enjoy the favor of heaven, prepare as you are to face these vast waterways and set sail on the Stygian marsh. Reach out your hand to one who is suffering. Take me with you over the waves, so that in death at the least I shall find a calm haven. That was his plea to Aeneas, and this was the answer he got from the Sibyl. What madness is this, Palladurus? You, who aren't even buried, what makes you think you can look on the waters of Styx or the Fury's grim river? You have not been called to the bank. Banish the thought that praying can ever affect the edicts of the gods. Your plight is a hard one, but hear and remember my words. They should be a comfort. What will happen is this. Your bones will be reverenced. The sky will reveal signs and portents. In cities on every side, populations will know to build your tomb and observe solemn custom with offerings year after year. And the place for all time will bear the name Palinurus. These words lifted his heart and raised for a moment his spirits. The thought of the land in his name makes him happy. 
heavy linen night and sleep. It is a thing forbidden to load the Stygian ferry with living bodies. I rue the day I carried Hercules and Theseus and Pirithous, sons of gods as they were, strong men, invincible. Hercules arrived to chain up and restrain the helm of the watchdog to steal him from the very throne of the king and to carry the panicked beast away. The others tried to abduct the queen from Pluto's bed, to which the soothsaying priestess made reply, Nothing like this is being planned here. These arms and weapons present you with no threat, so be calm. Let the monster cave dog howl his howl forever and keep on terrifying bloodless shades. Proserpina be her pure self behind her uncle's doors. Aeneas of Troy, renowned for his right life and warrior prowess, descends among the shades down to death's deepest regions to see his father. If the sight of such devotedness won't move you, you nevertheless must recognize this bow, and she shows the bow conceived by her cloak. Coron quietens then, his bad temper subsides. He says no more. It is long since he beheld the holy proffer of that faithful branch. He turns his dark barge round and steers for the shore. Other souls ensconced on the long thwarts, he hurries off a gangway, then at once hands mighty Aeneas down into the vessel. Under that weight, the boat's plied timbers groan, and thick marsh water oozes through the leaks. But in the end, it's a safe crossing, and he lands soldier and soothsayer on slithery mud, knee-deep in grey-green sedge. Here, Cerberus keeps watch, growling from three gullets, his brutal bulk couched in the cave, facing down all comers, but the sibyl, seeing snake hackles bristle on his necks, flings him a dumpling of soporific honey and heavily drugged grain. The ravenous triple maw yawns open, <laughs> snaffles the sock that has been thrown until next thing the enormous flanks go slack. And the inert form slumps to the cave floor. <laughs> Thus, with the watchdog sunk in a deep sleep, Aeneas gains entry and is quick to put behind him the bank of that river none comes back across. At once a sound of crying fills the air. The high wails and weeping of infant souls. Little ones denied their share of sweet life, torn from the breast on life's very doorstep. A dark day bore them off and sank them in untimely death. Next to them are those condemned to death on false charges. Although here they are assigned their proper verdicts by a rightly chosen jury. Minos, the judge, presides and shakes the urn, convenes a panel of the silent dead, seeking to establish men's characters and crimes. Farther on is the dwelling place of those unhappy spirits who died by their own hand, simply driven by life to a fierce rejection of the light. 
How they long now for the open air above. How willingly they would endure the lot of exhausted workers and the hard-wrought poor. But their way is barred by laws of gods. The waste and desolate marsh water laps round. River sticks with its nine loops binds and bounds them. Not far from here, the fields called the fields of mourning stretch out in all directions. On these plains, hidden on shadowy paths, secluded and embowered in murky groves, are those who suffered hard and cruel decline in thrall to an unremitting love. Their griefs do not relent, not even death. Here a day saw other lovers Phaedra and Procris, and sat Eryphile, pointing to the wounds dealt by her callous son. Evadne drew, and Pasiphae, and moving in step with them, Laodania the Caneus, who in her time had no life as a man, though fate had now restored the figure of the woman she once was. Along with these, still nursing her raw wound, Dido of Carthage strayed in the grey forest. As soon as the Trojan came close and made out her dimly wavering form among the shadows, he was like one who sees or imagines he has seen a new moon rising up among the clouds on the first day of the month. There and then he wept and spoke these loving, tender words. Unhappy Dido, so the news I got was true, that you had left the world, had taken a sword, and bade your last farewell. Was I, was I to blame for your death? I swear by the stars, by the powers above, and by any truth or may on the earth, I embarked from your shore, my queen, unwillingly. Orders from the gods which compel me now to travel among shades in this mouldering world, this bottomless pit of night, dictated obedience then as well. How could I believe my going would devastate you with such grief? Stay a moment, don't slip out of our sight. Is there someone you were trying to avoid? These words I'm saying to you are the last fate will permit me ever. Pleading with this, <coughs> tears welled up inside him. Aeneas tried to placate her fiery spirit and soften her fierce gaze, but she, averting her face, her eyes fixed steadily on the ground, turned and showed no sign of having heard, no more than if her features had been carved in flint or pariah marble. At length, she swept away and fled implacable into the dappling shadows of the grove where Sicius. Her husband, in another earlier time, feels for her pain and reciprocates the love she bears him still. While Aeneas, no less stricken by the injustice of her fate, gazes into the distance after her, gazes through tears and pities her as she goes.
Then he braces himself for the journey still to come. And soon they arrive in the farthest outlying fields, the hosting grounds of those renowned in war. In one place, Caideus reached, in another, Parthenopeus, glorious in arms, and the bloodless shade of Adrasmus. Elsewhere, the Trojan chieftains who fell in battle much mourned in the world above. And now he also mourned to see them thronging in such numbers. Glaucus, Medon, and Thersilochus, Antinor's three sons, Polyboides, the priest of Ceres, and Idaeus, still a chariot driver, still dressed in his armor, from right and left, souls crowd and jostle close, eager for more than just a look at him. They want his company, the joy of keeping in step, talking, learning why he has come. But the Greek captains and the gleaming cohorts, once led by Agamemnon, cowered in panic when they saw Aeneas advance in dazzling army, armor through the gloom. Some turned to flee as they had once to the ships. Some raised a spectral cry that came to nothing, dying away as it left their gaping mouths. And here, Aeneas caught sight of Priam's son, the Iphimus, mutilated in every part, his face in shreds, his face in his two hands, ears torn from his head, and his nostrils alone, dishonorable wounding this, his nostrils cut away, unrecognizable almost, as he shivered and shrank into himself to hide the cruel laceration. Aeneas, in a voice well known to him, spoke first resolutely. The infamous, mightiest in the field, offspring of Chaucer's ancient line, who was there capable of such mutilation? Who let themselves run so ruthlessly among? The story I heard was this. On the last night in Troy, you waded in Greek blood till you felt exhausted, fell like a dead man on a heap of their slobbered corpses. That is why I raised an empty tomb for you at Railton on the, on the shore, and with my three loud cries invoked your spirit, your name now, and your arms. Hallow that spot, but not you in the flesh, my friend, whom I could neither see as I embarked nor bury in home ground. Priam's son replied, And you, my friend, you left nothing undone. You paid the right attention to Deiphobus, dead man and shade. It was my destiny, and the criminal widowing schemes of my lady of Sparta right and ruined me. What you see are the love bites she left me in remembrance of that last night, of all our city's nights most jubilant and most deluded. But this you know too well already, for how could you forget? When the horse that was our fate came at a leap onto the heights of Troy, beating the belly with armed men, she was to the fore, involved in the dance, contriving to lead our women in the loud frenzy of the bacchanal. Up she went to our citadel, in her hand a torch conspicuously ablaze, signaling to the Greeks, and leading me in my God-cursed marriage bed, lying dead beat, far gone, giving into sleep, sweet, welcoming, drowsy sleep, serene, almost as death. 
Meanwhile, my paragon of a bride had cleared the house of every weapon and even stolen the sword from underneath my head. And now she opened doors and called for Menelaus to come in, hoping, no doubt, that this grand favor to her lover boy would blot out memories of old betrayals. But why say more? They broke into the bedroom. Ulysses with the insidious and malignant, oh God, as my plea for vengeance is a just one. Gods, retaliate, strike with the Greeks with all due punishment. But you, one of you, it is time I heard your story. What turn of events has brought you here alive? Do you come as a survivor, tempest-tossed, or at the gods' behest? What destiny hounds you down to these sunless, poor abodes, this land of troubles? Dawn in her rose-fussed chariot had taken her airy drive up half the sky as they talked together, and in all likelihood they would have talked on for whatever time had been allotted. But that the Sibyl at Inez's side reproved him in a few brief words. Night, Inez has begun to fall. We are wasting time lamenting. This is the fork of the road. Here it divides. To the right, where it runs beneath the walls of mighty Pluto's fortress, that one we take to Elysium. The one to the left sends evildoers to punishment in merciless Tartarus. Deiphobus then replied, do not, high priestess, be angry. I will be gone, will take my place with the rest, yielding once more to the dark. But you, the glory of Troy, go, go you to a happier fate. He'd had his say, but as he spoke, turned on his heel.
hurling his bright bolt from behind the cloud murk and blasting somebody as headlong down in an overwhelming whirlwind. There as well, you see Titius, foster son of earth, the mother of all. Titius, his body stretching out over nine whole acres, while a huge, horrendous vulture puddles forever with good beak in his liver and entry, teeming with raw pain. It burrows deep below the breastbone, feeding and foraging without respite, for the gnaw that gut and gut strings keep renewing. And the lapis, Ixion and Pimthos, should I mention them? Eternally menaced by a looming boulder, black and eternally about to fall. Golden headrests gleam on their high banquet couches. A sumptuous royal feast is spread to tempt them, but nearby the arch fury occupies her place, warding off hands that long to reach out to the meal, ever ready to spring with her lifted torch and terrifying yams. Also incarcerated, those who for a lifetime hated a brother, abused a parent, or ruined the good name of a client. Those who gloated on wealth they'd secretly amassed and hoarded and failed to share with kith and king. They comprised the biggest crowd. <laughs> those killed as adulterers, those who broke oaths of loyalty to masters in violent rebellions, all were confined there, awaiting punishment. What that punishment would be, what fault or faith intended, do not seek to know. Some roll a massive boulder or hang spread eagle tied to the spokes of wings. Theseus, on rocky soul, sits unmoving and will sit like that forever. While Phlegius, most stricken of all, cautions all. A constant proof of what his voice proclaims loudly through the darkness. Take warning by me. Learn to do right. Learn not to scorn the gods. Here too was one who sold his country's freedom, leaving her enthralled to a tyrant lord. Here one who would fix laws for a price and for a price unfixed. Here another who forced a daughter in her bed and into an abominable marriage. All dared to commit great wrong and were fit for what they dared. If I had a hundred tongues, if I had a hundred mouths and an iron voice, I could neither spell out the foul catalogue of those crimes nor name their punishments. Here Apollo's venerable priestess paused before continuing, but enough, be quick, you must conclude your undertaking now. We both must hurry. I see ramparts fashioned in cyclopic foundries and gates there in the arch in front of us, where the powers that be require us to deposit or serve his gift. That said, they proceed in step along the dark pathways, then hurry out across the open ground that fronts the doors. Aeneas takes his stand in the entrance, purifies his body with fresh water, and there and then plants the bow in the threshold. With this ritual finally performed, and honour done to the goddess, they came into happy vistas and the green welcome of the groves of the fortunate ones who dwell in joy. Here a more spacious air sheds brightness over the land, 
They enjoy their own sun here and their own stars. Some of their exercises on the grass, some competing in earnest, wrestling on yellow sand. Others are dancing dances and singing songs. Orpheus among them in his long musician's robe, keeping time, plucking his seven notes from the seven string lyre, now with his fingers, now with an ivory plectrum. Here too were members of Chaucer's ancient stock, that noblest of families, magnificent heroes born in better days, Illus and Asarachus, and Dardanus, who founded Troy. Aeneas gazed in wonder at their army, and the chariots beside them standing idle, their spears stuck tall in the ground, and their horses loosed out, free to graze the plain, anywhere they liked. The pride they took when alive in armor and chariots, the care they gave to their glossy, well-ruled teams, it's still the same now that they've gone away onto the earth. Others, too, he sees on every side, feasting in lush meadows or singing songs together to Apollo, deep in Laurel Grove, where the Eridanus courses through it on its way to the earth above. Here was a band of those who suffered wounds, fighting for their country, those who lived the pure life of the priest, those who were dedicated poets and made songs fit for Apollo, others still whose discoveries improved our arts or ease, and those remembered for a life spent serving others. All of them with headbands white as snow tied around their brows. These the Sibyl now addressed as they bustled close around her. Musaeus in particular, who stood out at the center of the crowd. The one looked up to, towering head and shoulders over them. Tell us, happy spirits, she began, and you, the best of poets, tell us, where does Anchises lodge? In which quarter? For his sake, we have crossed the mighty waterways to be here. Her question, the great hero answered briefly. None of us has one definite home place. We haunt the shadowy woods, bed down on river banks, on meadowland and earshot of running streams. But you, you, if your heart is set upon it, climb this ridge and I will direct you soon on an easy path. He spoke, walked on ahead, and showed the fields of light. Aeneas and Sybil came down the hill. And hear you talk and talk to you myself. 
This is what I imagined and looked forward to as I counted the days, and my trust was not misplaced. To think of the lands and the outlying seas you have crossed, my son, to receive this welcome after such dangers. I was afraid that Africa might be your undoing. But Aeneas replied, Often and often, Father, you would appear to me, your sad shade would appear, and that kept me going to this end. My ships are anchored in the Tuscan Sea. Let me take your hand, my father, oh, let me and do not hold back from my embrace. And as he spoke, he wept. Three times he tried to reach arms round that neck. Three times the form reached for in vain, escaped like a breeze between his hands. A dream on wing. Of the body, 
what possesses a person, why this mad desire to get back to the light. To put you out of doubt, and Kaiser's answers, I shall explain it straight away. And point by point, he then outlines the doctrine. To begin at the beginning, a nurturing inner spirit works to sustain sky, earth, the fields of ocean, the moon's bright disk, and Titan's star, the sun. And mind, operative in every part, imbues the massive whole, blending with the world's body, from which are born races of men and beasts, creatures that fly, and prodigies ocean breeds beneath the molten marble of its surface. The seeds of life are strong sparks out of fire. Their origin divine, so to that extent, they are immune to the heavy toll of the body, their quickness unaffected by the toil of human limbs and the mortal clothing of the flesh. It is from body that fear and desire, grief and delight derive, and in the darkness of its prison house, those first pure elements are shut off and screened from the light of heaven. Besides which, at the end, when life departs, they remain sadly infested by every evil and every bodily ill, for inevitably, in the course of time, many flaws mysteriously coalesce, hard set and deep ingrained. Therefore, souls are visited with due chastisements and affliction to atone for past offenses. Some are hung, racked and raped by vacuous winds. For others, the stain is washed away beneath whirling torrents or burnt off in fire. Each of us suffers the death we're due, then given the freedom of broad Elysium. The few, that is, will dwell in those blessed fields until the end of time, when length of days will remove the deep dyed taint, purify the ethereal sense, and that sheer original stuff of fire and spirit. The rest, when they have trod time's mill for a thousand years, the God commands wave upon wave into the Lethe River. So at that stage their memory is effaced, and they go once more to dwell beneath sky's dome and start again to long for the old life of flesh and blood. And Chrysis concluded and led his son, accompanied by the Sibyl, into the crowd, into the thick and buzzing throb of it. Then took his stand on a height where he could inspect the long, drawn-out procession and take note of every face as it approached and passed. Now I will instruct you in what is to be the future glory of the Trojan race, descendants due to be born in Italia, souls who in time will make our name illustrious. I speak of them to reveal your destiny to you. The lad you see there, who leans on his own tipped spear, placed next and nearest to the light, he will be the first to ascend to upper air, the first of our people with mixed Italian blood. He'll be known as Silvius, an Alban name, and be the last of your children. When you are old, your wife Lavinia will rear in the woods to be a king, and to father kings of our stock. The kings of our stock will issue from and rule in Alba Longa. Next to him stands Procas, pride and joy of the Trojan nation. 
then Cadmus and Numitor, and the one in whose name you will survive, Silvius Aeneas, no less distinguished as a warrior than you, and no less devoted, although he be waiting long to rule in Alba. Look at them, marvelous, strong young men, wearing their civic honors, oak wreaths like shadowy crowns, these, when you are gone, will build Nomentum and Gabii and the city of Fidena, fortify hill towns, wall the citadels of Colatia, found Pompeii, Ola and Cora and Campanius. Unheard of today, unsignified, their name and fame will come. And Romulus, yes, son of Mars, grandson of Numitor, whom Ilia is to bear, Romulus will stand firm by his grandfather, do you see how the twin plumes wave above his head? How the father of the gods has marked him out with his own insignia for singular majesty. Once he inaugurates the power of Rome, she in her glory will push an empire's bounds to the ends of the earth and harbor aspirations high as heaven. Seven hills she will girdle with a wall into a single city and be blessed with heroic sons. She will be like Sibele with her crown of towers, the great mother born in her chariot through the cities of Phrygia, happy and fulfilled to have given birth to gods. Grandchildren by the score in her generous arms, all of them sky dwellers, tenants of the heights. Now, Look this way, take good note of this clan, your own bloodline in Rome. There is Caesar and the whole offspring of Eunice, destined one day to issue forth beneath the dome of heaven. This is he whose coming you've heard foretold so often. Augustus Caesar, child of the Divine One, who will establish in Latium, in Saturn's old domain, a second golden age. He will advance his empire beyond the Garamans and the Indians to lands unseen beneath our constellations, beyond the sun's path through the zodiac, away where sky raised Atlas pivots on his shoulder, the firmament inlaid with glittering stars. Already the Caspian kingdoms and Maeosia know of his coming and begin to tremble at the oracles of their gods. The waters of the Nile quail in alarm and roil through their seven mouths. Not even Hercules pursued his labors over so much of the earth's surface. Not when he stalked and shot the bronze-toed deer, silenced the boar in the woods of Erymanthus, and left the air of Lerna vibrating in his bowstring. Not Bacchus either, careering in triumph, the vine reins in his grip, driving his tiger team down the heights of Nysa. So why should we then hesitate to test and prove our worth in action, or be afraid to stake and stand our ground in Italia? But that one in the crown of olive sprays, offering sacrifice, that grey head and grizzled beard, I recognize as Numas, king of Rome, sprung from the humble town of Cures, called from its poor land to wield high power and frame the city's first system of laws, to be succeeded next by Tullus, who will wreck his country's peace, turn an easy-going people militant, and drill an army long out of the field for victory. After him, that's Ancus, swaggering, too full of himself already, overly susceptible to the wind of popularity in his sails. And there, if you care to look, are the regal tarpons and haughty brutus called Avenger, who'll arrange the handover of the fasces. 
first consul to be installed and given authority as custodian of the pitiless axis. Then, as a father, when his sons foment their plot, he will decree their summary execution in the fair name of liberty. Stricken in this, no matter how future generations may comprehend it, love of country will prevail, and the overwhelming desire for fame. Now over there you see the Deci and the Drusi, Torquatus who will behead his son, and Camillus who will recapture the standards. But alas for that pair in their burnished armour, well-matched champions, twin souls in accord as long as they stay pent in this shadowland. But once promoted to the sky above, what mutual destruction they will wreak, the internecine savagery and slaughter of a civil war. Caesar, the bride's father, bearing down from the northern Alps, Pompey, the husband with his legions in formation, advancing from the east. Do not, O oh my sons, inure yourselves to such dreadful consequence. Do not bloody the bosom of your country with vicious, valiant battle. And you, child of my blood, of the gods on high Olympus, be you the first in clemency. Rid your hands of these weapons. Yonder to his movies, conqueror of Corinth, who will ride his victor's chariot up to the capital, a hero for having brought ruination on the Greeks, that other at his side will destroy Argus and Agamemnon's Mycenae, defeat descendants of arch-warrior Achilles, avenge his Trojan forebears and the rape of Cassander in Minerva's temple. Next, great Cato, you, who could not sing your praise, or Cossus yours, or the family of the Gracchi, or those two Scipios, two warrior thunderbolts who will strike down Bellicose Carthage, or Fabricius the indomitable and frugal, or you, Serranus, sowing your furrowed fields. Nor is there a quick or easy way to scan the long line of the Fabii, down to the greatest, Fabius Maximus, he who will contrive to stall and therefore save our state. Others, I have no doubt, with a more delicate touch will beat bronze into breathing likenesses, conjure living features out of marble, argue cases more effectively and with their compass plot the heavens orbit and predict the rising of the constellations. But you, Roman, remember, to you will fall the exercise of power over the nations and these will be your gifts to impose peace and justify your sway. Spare those you conquer, crush those who overbear. Here Anchises paused, then while they wondered at his words, continued. Now look, there goes Marcellus, head and shoulders above all the rest, victorious in armor of the general he killed. He will help Rome to stand firm while it bears the brunt of fierce invasion. He will ride high over Carthaginians and insurgent Gauls, then dedicate those rich, spare, spoil, rare spoils, won only twice before, to Father Quirinus. At which point, Aeneas saw a young man in step with Marcellus, arrayed in glittering arms, exceedingly handsome, but with lowered eyes, unhappy looking. So he asked, 
Who, Father, is that companion at his side? A son or another of his great descendants? What crowds and clamor follow him? What presence he has? What black night wreathes his brow with dolorous shadow? Choking back his tears, and Cassius answered, Do not, O my son, seek foreknowledge of the heavy sorrow your people will endure. Fate will allow the world only to glimpse him, then rob it of him quickly. It's as if the gods decided the Roman people would be manifestly too powerful were the gift of his life to last. How the city will re-echo mass laments from the brave on the field of Mars. What a funeral procession, Tiber, you will witness as you go flowing past the new-built tomb. No boy born from our Trojan stock will ever raise the hopes of his Latin ancestors so high, nor the land of Romulus take such pride in his song. Alas for his goodness, his antique loyalties, his strong right arm unbeaten in the battle. No foe would have faced and fought him and survived, whether he marched on foot or sank his spurs in the flanks of some foaming, lathering warlord. Oh, son of pity, alas that you cannot strike fate's cruel fetters off, for you are to be Marcellus. Load my arms with lilies. Let me scatter purple flowers. Let me lavish these gifts at least on the soul of my inheritor and perform my unavailing duty. And so far and wide in those fields through regions of air, they go wandering at will, surveying all. And after Anchises has conducted Aeneas across the whole expanse, scene after scene, and fired his mind with promise of future glory, he tells of wars that will first have to be waged, of the Laurentines in the town of King Latins, how he should face or flee each undertaking. <laughs> There are two gates of sleep, one of which they say is made of horn and offers easy passage to true visions. The other has a luminous, dense ivory sheen, but through it to the sky above, the spirits of the dead send up false dreams. Anchises, still guiding and discoursing, escorts his son and the Sibyl on their way and lets them both out by the ivory gate. Aeneas hurries to the ships and rejoins his comrades, then sails, hugging the shore, to the port of Caise. Anchors are cast from the prow, sterns cushion on sand.